Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Bill Glenn and Michael Lerner as they discuss the Enneagram, an archetypal psychology. Bill Glenn, welcome to the New School. Thank you, Michael. Bill, you are a former Jesuit, a psychotherapist and spiritual director with a private practice in San Francisco and Santa Rosa. You've done a lot of things. You were executive director of Continuum, a tenderloin-based healthcare agency. Uh, you've uh, worked on the Enneagram uh, since 1978 and have done many workshops on its applications. Um, you were the convener of Spirit Group, an intentional prayer community, and um, for 10 years co-facilitated a program for lifers at San Quentin. <laughs> Um, I could go on. You have many other affiliations, but we're honored to have you here. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. Good. What is the Enneagram? The Enneagram is life. It's our life. It's a structure. It's primarily a structure that allows us a window into ourselves and each other. It's a structure whose origins are a little mysterious, You'll read some literature or have already perhaps about the Enneagram. This book, which Michael and I both have up here, The Wisdom of the Enneagram, which for me is the most accessible Bible on the Enneagram, gives a very good history. But I'll give you just a, a couple of thoughts. The, the uh, use of structure is ancient in the West. Pythagoras and other Greeks used structure as a way to try to get at primitive human psychology uh, 2,000 years ago. Um, various systems have developed over the last 2,000 years trying to understand the integration of human personality, both in its individuality and its cohesive qualities. The modern father of the Enneagram is regarded by most writers as Gurdjieff, who did his work in late 19th, early 20th century in Russia, Turkey, uh, and later in Western Europe. Um, a psychiatrist in Chile, his name is Claudia Narano, and Michael has several of Nerano's uh, volumes up here. Nerano's a brilliant man. In the 1960s, he began to codify Gurdjieff's work along with the work of other spiritual, uh, spiritually astute uh, observers, including the Sufis, some notions from Kabbalah, from Christian mysticism. And he created what we call the Enneagram today. Its current kind of structure and the intuitive principles are really the result of Nerano's work. Um, Nerano had an associate named Oscar Ichazo who brought the Enneagram to the United States in the 1970s, I believe in 1972. Um, and its popularization began in actually the East Bay in Berkeley in the very early 1970s, and I can fill in a little bit of that in a moment. That's, it's basically a structure to understand human personality and to liberate us from the clutches or the grip the ego has on us. And it's deeply insightful, it's intuitive, it's in its most beautiful way mathematical, um, and it's accessible, it's uh, accessible for all of us. In its uh, numeration, the numeration means nothing other than a way to mark. There's no hierarchy to it. There's no better than. There's no worse than. Although in our personalities, there are days that are better than and worse than, and that's how the ego operates. And we can talk a little more about that as we go on. Hmm. 
wonderful summary. Um, there was a circle around Claudio Naranjo in Berkeley of early students. Uh, can you name some of the people in that circle? The one I know, the, the one I knew and know, oh. was a Jesuit named Bob Oakes. The Jesuits have a school of theology in Berkeley as part of the Graduate Theological Union, on whose board I have the great pleasure of serving currently. Um, but Bob Oakes uh, was a Jesuit sociologist who took a great interest in this when he was exposed to it when the people around uh, Jazza were very few in number. And he brought it back to the community. And of course, those of you uh, my age and older know this was a time of great ferment in American religion. And uh, the Vatican Council for the Roman Church and for mainline Christianity had had an enormous effect on opening up the conversation and the language of religion and spirituality. But I think... Uh so I think A.H. Almas was part of that yes. group. Um, uh, his colleague Sandra Maitre, I believe, yes. was part of that group. Helen Palmer, who really popularized the Enneagram for many people, were, was part of that group. Um, so it was an incredibly influential group. It became influential. All yeah. the names you just mentioned yeah. had become deep, uh, I don't want to say authorities, but they right. inculcated the wisdom of the Enneagram and promulgated it. Right. I, I think Helen Palmer probably most popular right, right. in the United States. Right. And uh, I don't know if Richard Rohr was part of that group or not. He was not. And okay. he, he was part of the group of Roman Catholic religious who were really enlivened by the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. And it became for them uh, a tool for doing spiritual direction, to be more astute in the way they tried to understand how the spirit, if you will, uh, moves in a person's life and how we might best pay attention to the movement of the spirit by paying a lot of attention to the defenses the ego mm -hmm. throws up against the spirit's movement. Mm -hmm. You know, I became, I'm a neophyte to this. I became interested within the past year. I had looked at it for 20 years and never found a way into it. And then suddenly as these things happen, you know, when you're prepared. And uh, you did a workshop with our staff here at Commonweal. And... Uh, what I find, and as you mentioned, we were talking before the program, it's taught at Stanford Business School. Uh, it's uh, used, Kira Epstein was at an organization before Commonweal where they used it as a way of, uh, you know, developing cohesion in the workplace. So there are a lot of people who have no interest or knowledge uh, of the esoteric uh, lineage from right. which it comes that use it as a practical tool. You know? I think that's actually its main presence in our culture now right. is as a practical tool. Right. And it's used extensively in universities, schools, nonprofit organizations right. uh, to help people learn to work together and live together. Right. And, and so I know one of the things that happened at Commonweal, where we've often worked together for 10, 20 years together at least, that knowing where someone is enables you not only to understand them better, but to have more compassion about how they work and to have more compassion for yourself about how you work in the world. So it seems to me, among other things, it's a tool for self-understanding and self-compassion and then a tool for understanding how others work that is enormously powerful. As a psychotherapist, I know, uh, and I work with the Enneagram with clients, there are nine types of within the Enneagram. Ennea is Greek for nine, of course. And 
a, a psychotherapist may have a tool chest that includes a few ways of working with people. And if you're working with a type who has a very specific way they are in the world and you apply a, a strategy that is counterintuitive to that client, you can beat your head against the wall for endless numbers of sessions. But if you have a tool like this and I say this, you can really begin to see how we respond to certain kinds of things and how we resist other kinds of things, how we integrate in one direction and how we disintegrate, if you will, in another direction. So, so let's go through the nine types. Could you yeah. give us a brief tour of the nine types? Sure. You can, I know you all have a little chart with you, and this is a, a chart made for today that has a lot of information on it. Pay attention or not to it. Uh, while I uh, speak to you. The Enneagram is, uh, again, Greek for nine, and it, gram is a structure. It's a structure that is interactive. Every, every type has a point on the Enneagram, and as you can see, there's enormous interaction, flow, tension within the structure itself. There are, within this nine, there are three triads. There's the instinctual triad, the feeling triad, and the thinking triad. The instinctual triad, and th these are people, and I'm in this triad, we, we do our work in our gut. So eights, nines, and ones, we're in the instinctual triad. Twos, threes, and fours do their work in their heart at the feeling level. Does that mean I don't feel? It doesn't mean that at all. It means the primary locus of the work is done in the heart. Five, sixes, and sevens, do it in their heads. Does that mean they don't feel or they don't have a good gut instinct? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means the primary locus of the way we do our work in the world is in one of these triads. So that's kind of the outer structure. There are nine types within uh, the Enneagram. And I'm going to refer to these as shadows. There are ego strategies. The Enneagram is taught in two ways in the United States right now. It was brought as a tool to help us understand our shadow material. That was its original intent. But in popular psychology and self-help, we don't like to look at the dark side in our culture, so we inverse and we talk about the Enneagram as a, a tool of light. It's, it's actually a tool that focuses on our dark side, which none of us are naturally drawn to. We would much rather have people see us as beings of light. Unless we're a five. Unless <laughs> Which I am. I was going to say, and I know there's one in the room, <laughs> unless there's a five. So I'm going to talk about it from kind of both angles, but I'm going to focus on, in my initial observations, on the shadow material. So ones... And most writers talk, don't begin with one, to my great regret. They really begin the Enneagram in the feeling triad. So I'm going to begin with twos. The two is known as the helper. That's a flattering term. The two really has a, a couple of main issues. Pride is their significant sin in the sense of the seven deadly sins. Pride is what a two is negotiating with. And the way they negotiate with their pride is by flattery. So if, if you're, I know there are, two, there are always twos uh, present when we talk about the Enneagram because they're always here to help. Um, so if you're a two, you understand a little about that. And I'll illustrate by giving you several names, both from kind of secular and spiritual life that'll give you a little window on the Enneagram. And you may say to yourself, well, how does Ann Landers and Quan Yin work in the same sentence? They do, and you'll figure it out. So... Uh, kind of emblematic twos, Ann Landers. 
than now deceased, but really wise gossip, uh, excuse me, uh, advice columnist. That was, a, that was a Freudian slip. I did not intend that. Kuan Yin, the, the beautiful, moving goddess of compassion. Desmond Tutu, the uh, electrically loving former Archbishop of Cape Town, South Africa. Mother Teresa, the somewhat severe, totally focused on taking care of the poor in, in Kolkata. Those are twos. Three, still within the feeling triad, they're the achievers of the Enneagram. They're the ones for whom success is of paramount value. They're externally focused. They're the most externally focused of all types of the Enneagram. Their shadow material is deceit. And it's manifest in vanity. So... There are sometimes threes in the room when we talk about the Enneagram, but not, not so often. Do we? So we have a three who laughed when I said deceit and vanity. So to my point, <clears throat> some threes. You'll know a couple of these intuitively because we all are drawn to threes. Threes are charismatic. They're often beautiful. They're charming. They're successful. And culturally, we're drawn to people who have those characteristics. And America is considered a three civilization. America is a three country. Yeah. Right. Three values are American values. Right. And it's our deep shadow, and we see it manifest right now in this presidential race, right. I think, significantly. Yeah. Bill Clinton, proto three. Charming, charming, charming. <laughs> Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, who has nothing in common ostensibly with Bill Clinton, but she was a three. And she drove the Catholic worker movement to become a significant force in kind of American social policy and American spirituality. Joel Osteen, the televangelist, the prosperity gospel guy, very charming, all external. If you listen to his programs carefully, which I'm not encouraging you to do, but if you do, there's very little substance. There's very little movement into the interior. There's very little movement into silence or solitude. Lady Gaga, utterly charming, inviting, charismatic. Oprah. Oprah, like Bill Clinton, is kind of quintessential three. She has a big two wing. She does a lot of good. She's very committed to the less fortunate in life. But that's based on the fact her pictures on the cover of Oprah magazine every single month. Only a three could pull that off and not have a subject. Four, still within the feeling triad, doing their work in their heart. The fours are the individualists, the romantics, sometimes the tragic romantics of life. Their main issue, their main shadow material is envy. And they work out their envy by manifesting melancholy. So that may not feel utterly intuitive, but if you work with that for a bit, you'll see envy can very easily lead to melancholy, a state of melancholia. Oscar Wilde. If you know Oscar Wilde, he, he represents this. He was a man of great taste, certain kind of late 19th century British elegance, uh, opinionated, tragic, but remarkably deep. If you read De Profundis, 
the very slight book he wrote, read, wrote from Reading Jail after he was um, misaccused. Uh, that book is a little spiritual gem. Rumi, who many of you undoubtedly have read and worked with and learned from. Rumi was uh, a four. Thomas Merton, the, the Trappist monk, who's my great teacher, um, was a four. And Suzanne Zercher, who's an Enneagram writer, has written a, a biography of Merton as a four. Mm. Um, Merton's great mystical moments came uh, on the streets of Louisville, Kentucky, when he was in town. He, he lived a life as a recluse, as a hermit. But he had gone into Louisville to see his doctor, and he had this moment that's regarded as one of the two apex moments of his life on a street in downtown Louisville back in the 1950s. And this was his insight as a four. This was what freed him. He said, I am, I am, I am like other people. So deeply did he want to just be a person and not to have to be so unique and carry the burden of uniqueness. Bob Dylan, Angelina Jolie, Jackie Onassis, all individualists for whom envy and melancholy was the material they had to work with. And you may be saying to yourself, well, oh my God, I wouldn't want to work with that. But when I hit your number, you're going to say, oh my God, I have to work with that? <laughs> we each have our shadow material. All human beings do. And what the Enneagram does is cluster them into a system that lets us work with them creatively. Fives. We're moving now into uh, the thinking triad. Fives are the observers. They see things clearly and keenly. Their core issue, their shadow issue, is avarice. And avarice is manifested as, as stinginess for an unevolved five. No, but it can mean avarice not only for money, but for knowledge or... For Mostly not money. about money. A yeah, absolutely, yeah, Michael. Yeah. Stinginess of holding things in, of wanting to contain it, of keeping it in, mm -hmm. because it's threatening to let it out. They call them the unenlightened Buddhas. They, <laughs> and the true loners of the Enneagram. They can, they can be yeah. true loners and they can deny their own feeling life. Like all of us, they have a feeling life, but they're so adept at utilizing their cognitive functions yeah. that they can miss their feeling lives and not pick up the feeling content of others. Right. That's an unintegrated vibe. Yeah. But we're all called to integrate, and we'll talk more about yeah. that. Sixes. Sixes are in this thinking triad Sixes are the loyalists of the Enneagram. Their main uh, shadow issue is fear, and fear is manifested at its nadir as cowardice. Uh, uh, I, I want to go back to fives, because I didn't illustrate with some examples. We call them stingy, and they have to work with avarice, but the Buddha, who, particularly in California, and then, of course, in the East, we revere and... Um, pay deep attention to was a five. As someone said earlier to me, did he take the Enneagram test and determine that? <laughs> we have determined this for him. But Christ was said to be a two, right? Christ was either a two or a nine. And we say nine because nine is regarded as the eye of God. And if any number in the Enneagram incorporates all other types, it's a nine, but of course there are great liabilities for a nine, as we'll get to in that process of integrating everyone else, because sometimes they get lost. 
But Christ had the, I, I like to think he was a two with a one wing, if I mm-hmm. can, can mm-hmm. say that. Because mm-hmm. he had a prophetic quality to him, we'll see, as part of the one's uh, positive uh, mm-hmm. movement. Um, but his compassion and absolute commitment to being of service is at the core of... But if Christ was a two and a nine, then likewise the Buddha would be a five and a nine, right? In other words, any any eye of God figure would be a nine... Would have nine qualities. But then would have their own... But his essence would be yeah. a five essence. And isn't Christianity considered a two religion? At it, at it, I believe and the term least. Christianity, I'm going to talk about it in right. two ways. Yeah. If I might riff just yeah. for a second. Yeah, yeah. There's the sin salvation law Christianity, and there's the, <laughs> that would be a one, yeah. the old one, and then there's the love liberation Christianity, yeah. mm-hmm. and they're in enormous tension in our culture right. in particular. Right. They're not in tension in Western Europe anymore because Christianity's juice has been lost for reasons that we could go into and don't need to, but in the United States, which is still a country in which religion in addition to spirituality, plays a significant role in our cultural life. Mm-hmm. The, law, the law, sin, salvation model is what is regarded as Christian. And of course, the model that to me is most efficacious and interiorizing is the love liberation model. Mm-hmm. Um, and the love liberation model only is lived out in service. And that's the two. Mm-hmm. The... Uh, Law model, the sin salvation model is a one model, an unreconstructed one. And we could say that every religion has both a two and a one dimension, that there's the inner mystical dimension, which might be either a two or a five in terms of the Buddha, but uh, every religion has its orthodoxy, its, you know, sort of law, you know, attack the outsider. Right which is the unevolved one. Right. And it's the, the one that often has hegemony because it's culturally right. approbated. And, and a very interesting point here, just to continue the riff for a minute, is that Brother David Steindl-Rast and uh, the Sufis and the traditionalist thinkers characterize all religions. In other words, there's a single light that diffuses into all the different religious traditions which are at the heart of the great civilizations. But every religion has a mystical core and then an exoteric shell. And the exoteric shell is the law, the, you know, the simplistic version that's we versus they, all that kind of stuff. And the and the esoteric core is connected to the single light. It's the, you know, it's the it's the heart uh, spirit dimension. And uh, the Sufis and the traditionalist thinkers like Rene uh, Sean and other Rene Ganon and Fritjof Schoen, uh, particularly Fritjof Schoen, say that the way that a religion handles the tension between its exoteric shell and its esoteric core determines the future of that religion. That is to say that if the exotericists who make the rules try to destroy the mystical core, it destroys the heart of the religion. And so you find in a lot of traditions this awareness that, you know, that the shell has to be there, but that if it doesn't protect and honor the core, it destroys the light. I think, if, I think we're seeing that in our own culture right I now. I agree with that. Uh, fundamentalist Christianity yeah. has uh, almost abandoned the mystical tradition. Right. 
tradition of interiority, mm -hmm. uh, silence, deep spirituality, for an absolute, absolute hegemony of the law, mm -hmm. uh, literal interpretation. And of course, no text can be literally interpreted and stay alive. Mm -hmm. And while that right now in our, our culture is having its moment, I think that moment is mm -hmm. not going to last. Good. So let's continue. I didn't mean to take you, us too far please, off. Please, yeah. you didn't. Yeah. Um, other fives. Diedrich Bonhoeffer. If you know Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German Lutheran pastor whose uh, evolution led him to be part of the group that tried to um, end Hitler's life. Uh, and he was uh, accused in that uh, conspiracy and um, shot uh, several weeks before the uh, Soviets entered Berlin in 1945, uh, a new biography of Bonhoeffer is called Strange Glory. Uh, it was published last year. It's a tremendous book about what it means to become a human being and to evolve over time. Uh, and it, it's, it's a beautiful explication of a five. Eckhart Tolle, who many of you probably uh, know, is a five. Dr. Freud... Uh, an exemplary five, whose ability to see penetrated the human psyche. Um, and we've kind of moved away from Freud in our culture, but, we, but the, the deepest insights of psychology trace themselves back to Freud's insights. Um, Annie Leibovitz, the photographer. Her, her, her camera is her, her lens, is her scene. And of course, we're, we kind of know her work when we see it, and we, we're drawn to it because... She's such an insightful seer. She sees things so clearly and empathically. I think she has a big four-wing. Sixes. I told you a little bit about sixes. Fear as their shadow issue, manifesting cowardice. Um, there are sixes all over our lives. Sixes are one of the more, more common numbers in the Enneagram in terms of the population. You can go online and, and determine what percentage of population is thought to be uh, each type. And there, there are just a lot of sixes. And there are a lot of sixes in our culture. They're related to threes. We'll talk about how that relationship is structured in a little bit. Um, Krishnamurti, the Hindu writer. St. Peter. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres. You may say, what does St. Peter and Ellen DeGeneres have in common? This is where you're required to go deeper inside and come up with that. George Herbert Walker Bush, Richard Milhouse Nixon, Woody Allen, Adolf Hitler, all sixes. So obviously Ellen's personality is nothing like we imagine Adolf Hitler's personality, but they had a core issue they are required to deal with in life based on strategies they developed as children. <clears throat> and I'll, uh, I'll stop for a minute and talk a little bit about how we develop those strategies at an early age. Is that That's fine. But, you know, let me suggest that we, before we go on to that, let's finish the circle. Fine. Yeah, just because... And remind me to, to I will. go back to yeah. that. Sevens, um, the enthusiasts of the Enneagram. We're all drawn to sevens because the sevens have the energy. They have the juice. They're enthusiastic. They want to move on quickly. Their shadow issue is gluttony. Not gluttony in terms of food, just like avarice is not in terms of money. Gluttony in terms of too much, just too much all the time, too much of anything. Um, 
Their shadow issue is lived out in planning. Sevens plan. They aren't here doing their planning. They always have the next event, the next trip, the next boyfriend or girlfriend. It's always in the works because that's a distraction from having to be here now. Here now. So solitude is most challenging for a seven. Who wants to be onto the next adventure? And they're, they're delightful because they're adventuresome and they take us from our positions and move us. But they have <clears throat> a lot of work to do, like we all do. Sevens from our life or from the past, St. Francis of Assisi was a seven. Annie Lamont, who's littered Marin County. Bolinas. Bolinas spent many years in Bolinas. So she has that Bolinas yeah. feel about her. You know that. Um, she has a big eight wing, Annie Lamont does. And we'll talk about that. And Joe Biden, the vice president, is a seven. He is always a little ahead. He's not quite focused on this, and that's part of his charm and delight. Um, probably a liability. Uh, John F. Kennedy was a seven. All of them enthusiasts. You're listening to a conversation with Bill Glenn and Michael Lerner. Eight. And now we move back into the uh, gut instinct uh, triad. Eights are the boss. And their shadow issue is lust. Again, like avarice and gluttony, not lust in terms of sexual lust, which we often equate it with in our minds, but in terms of wanting it all and control. Wanting it all to control. I have to have that. I have to control that. And their shadow issue is shamelessness. It can be shameless. Now, we don't want anyone to be gripped by shame, but there is a certain healthy shame that we all have that it, uh, introduces us to our boundaries so that I don't cross a boundary and invade someone else's space and shame them. Eights don't have a problem with that. And you, if there are eights in the room, you kind of know what I'm talking about. And if you've worked with eights or live with eights or love an eight, you know that's an issue you're just going to be working with right up until the funeral is that <laughs> challenge of keeping that boundary clear. Eights, however, when they integrate, and we'll talk about integration, they integrate to their two. They are the most dynamic characters on the planet. Lyndon Baines Johnson was an eight who spent a lot of time in 1964 at his two, and he had this enormous compassion for the poor. And from that, we got the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and the War on Poverty. All came from an eight, an enormously powerful person who did not broker opposition, and he drove that with the power of his personality and his political skills. And his commitment was true, and true, it was a very true commitment. Later on, he got into trouble with his eightness because he could not hear opposition to his war policies. Other eights, King David, the author of the Psalms, which are such a beautiful text and deeply human text. But as you know, King David had a backstory, and his backstory had a lot of unpleasantness to it based on his lust, and lust in all forms. He, he took the whole gamut of lust. But here we are 2,500 years later, reading King David perhaps every day. Ann Richards, the charismatic governor of Texas um, back in the uh, 90s, Sarah Palin, the former governor of Alaska and current uh, endorser of uh, Mr. Trump. Gurdjieff, the spiritual, I would say, the wise spiritual gadfly, gadfly in that he did not 
uh, require of himself that he settle into any one thing, but he tried to explore to a degree what Michael was talking about earlier, the light that penetrates all religion. And he did a pretty good job. He was uh, interested in orthodoxy from Russia. He was interested in Western Christianity. He was interested in Judaism. Um, if you were alive today, he would undoubtedly be interested in Buddhism and Hinduism and perhaps even Islam. Um, nines, uh, nines are the peacemakers of life and they're the peacemakers of the Enneagram, sometimes called the eye of God because they, if any number incorporates all of us, it's nines. Um, but nines have a, a, a deep shadow uh, issue um, that they are able to skirt a lot because they are the eye of God, and that's sloth. Now, sloth is just a horrible word, and we'd, ha- we'd hate to say, I'm married to a nine, and I do not like to say this person is filled with sloth. But what this person is filled with is indecision. Nines do not want to make any decisions because if they make a decision to be for this, it means they can't be for this. And if they're not for this, someone may not like them for not being for this. And then there are these people over here. So they are all the time balancing everyone in order for everyone to like them, which is why they're effective peacemakers. But in the process of that, they can lose their interior, their self. We typically love nines. We get exasperated with them, but we love them. From the Old Testament, Jonah was a Jonah did not want to be in the belly of the whale. This was not part of his stratagem at all. And he did not then want to go to Nineveh and talk to them. He didn't want any of this whole thing. Perfectly chosen. Abraham Lincoln. Now you will say, well, Abraham Lincoln made profound decisions. He did make profound decisions. First of all, he had an eight wing that helped him out. But a nine is utterly capable of making decisions, but the process of doing it is wrenching. And if you know Lincoln, if you've read Lincoln biographies and paid attention to him, he was he loved the South. He loved, he had no hatred for the Confederates. He loved the South because he loved the human beings in his large capacity to love. You read his second inaugural address, and it's a heartbreaking, evocative, beautiful testament of a man who had to make a decision that broke his heart. Ronald Reagan, Carl Jung, John the 23rd, for those of you who were alive in the 1950s and know the revolution he started in not just the Roman church, but in Western religion. And I've typed our current president. uh, There's not unanimity on this yet because he's still with us, thank God, my opinion. Uh, I, I think Barack Obama is nine. He has uh, an enormous capacity to receive and take in other people. Is he he plagued by indecision? I I would say he's plagued by making the right decision because he wants to try to take in the needs of everyone. I don't think he's plagued by needing to be liked by everyone, but I think he is trying to meet everyone's needs. And of course, in doing so, he pays the price because he's not going to meet everyone's needs. But that quality in him, there's an eye of God. If you get the term eye of God, you'll see in the president, there's an eye of God quality to him. If you remember his uh, tribute to the Reverend Clementa Pinckney at the Baptist Church in Charleston last summer. And I encourage you to go back and YouTube that. Watching that man build that eulogy into that song and leading that song, uh, it was a rare moment. Uh, and it's something a lot of us couldn't pull off, but he was able to pull that off. 
last but certainly not least <laughs> is the one. The one is the reformer, the perfectionist of the Enneagram of life. The Enneagram is just of life. The shadow issue for a one is anger. And it's not the blasting anger. That can come from an eight, but it's hidden anger. So that you are never quite clear if your perception that a one is angry is accurate because the one will always deny that there's any anger involved in our conversation. (laughs) And the way it's manifest is in resentment. Because I am not going to allow you any access to my anger, but I will resent the hell out of you for even presuming to be touching this material, which is clearly mine. I hate to tell the truth about ones, but I have learned to for my own salvation. Mahatma Gandhi was a one. Ones are often very driven for justice reasons, and they can be the great social justice reformers of life. Isaiah, the great, great prophet from the Old Testament. If you read the book of Isaiah... It just drips with one energy. It's just every, it's just one, he's all over one. His relationship with the divine in in, uh, the book of Isaiah, he's so got the divine's number. And he's really helping the divine see the clearer path. And the divine always doesn't see that, but he never gives up because ones are perfectionists. They're going to get this in the end. St. Paul, for those of you who are raised in a Christian tradition, St. Paul was a one, grew to be tiresome so often because he was so tenacious in his demands that others be perfect. Al Gore, deeply committed to justice, especially earth justice. Unflinching. But his one qualities probably cost him the presidency because he was a little inflexible. (coughs) And people perceive that, and we don't like inflexibility. Now, an evolved one, of course, is utterly flexible. I want you to know that so that you're not going to encounter that today. (laughs) And finally, the columnist George Will, conservative columnist. George Will is a very acute observer of the culture from his perspective. He's very tenacious. If you've read him over the course of your life, and uh, you you may have, he holds to his (laughs) principles. He's a very principled man. Uh, He's a little disdainful of people who are not as bright as he is. And his resentments kind of come out in his columns uh, from time to time. So those are the nine types. I'll say one more thing about those types before we move on to movement within the Enneagram. There are three earners in the Enneagram. And those, those are those of us who earn our way in life. And there's ones, twos, and sixes. We earn There are demanders in the Enneagram. Threes, seven, and eights, they're the demanders. They do not earn, they demand. And then there are the withdrawers. Fours, fives, and nines withdraw. And keep that kind of rough concept in mind as you think of yourself uh, and as you think of those you love and those you work with and those you don't love so much but want to learn to love in the course of your lifetime. So... I'm an earner. I'm here to earn your trust and respect. A demander won't worry about earning it. She will demand it, and she'll more often than not get it. Fives, if, to get your respect, will withdraw some and allow you to come closer to them to see what they're doing rather than get in your face. 
Demanders will pretty much get in your face. Earners will let you know they're here to get in your face. And withdrawers will stand back and say, if you want to get in my face, we can work together. Okay? So let's pause now in, in terms of the um, presentation. And here's a, here's a question that, that I have really been thinking about. And I talked to my friend and colleague, Rachel Naomi Remen, about this uh, a couple of nights ago. I have no question that the Enneagram works. In other words, my experience is that if you're the kind of person who gets into this, it works for the kind of person who gets into it. This is a remarkable tool. The question I have is, why does it work? And so Rachel said to me, she said, you know, as a mystic, I never ask why it works. She said, I just take it for granted that it works, you know. But I am enough of an, an empiricist to wonder why it works. And so here's the thing. Um, astrology is also an archetypal psychology. Actually, many astrologers also study the Enneagram, the, many of them, um, in astrology, your number, in effect, your sign, is assigned to you by your birthday. Uh, in Enneagram, you discover it. In fact, it's considered bad taste to type other people too much. You'd let them discover it for themselves. Um, so why is it? And then in astrology, my experience is that both Western astrology and Vedic astrology also both work, and yet they have different systems. And then I think to myself, well, tarot readings work. And throwing the I Ching works. So why is it that systems that appear to function by chance, like a tarot and I Ching, and systems that are assigned by date of birth but may differ, like Western and Eastern astrology, and systems like the Enneagram, which are all archetypal psychologies, why do they all work? Mm. And I have some thoughts about that, but I'm curious if you ask yourself that question. Uh, I, I have asked myself that question. Of course, I am asked that question when I do workshops. Mm -hmm. And my glib answer is because they do. Mm -hmm. But that's not entirely glib. Mm -hmm. I think we choose these strategies. I don't think we discover them. I think we choose them, the nine strategies of the Enneagram. And I'll get to the deeper meaning of your question in a minute. When we're young very young. We perceive the world, and when we're one, two, three, four, and those of you who are parents or have been parents know this deeply, ones, twos, threes, and four-year-olds aren't operating on the logical system on which your question is based. Mm -hmm. They originally are operating totally on an intuitive system and an instinctual system. What a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and a four-year-old knows, mm -hmm. I need to get my needs met. They don't have to enumerate their needs, they feel their needs. And they go about getting their needs met. And they coalesce, I believe, because I think our antenna when we're little are as sharp as they are in our whole lives. I think they dull over time. So we choose a strategy. I chose the one strategy. What I wanted, which each of you wanted, I wanted to be loved and I wanted to feel secure. And I knew what love meant, even though I couldn't talk about it coherently. And I knew what it meant to feel safe. And in my family of origin, I'm one of eight children, so in my family there are many types, and of course I had the two parents, 
there were 10 of us trying to get our needs met. And I chose the perfectionist strategy because I knew with my parents, my parents are a double six couple. Sixes are deeply committed to the law. I knew the way for me to get my needs met was to become perfect in obedience. I had other siblings, my oldest sister, and if you're the oldest daughter in your family, you may well be a two. The oldest daughter often chooses the two strategy because she perceives the way I get my needs met is to help my mother with the other kids, and then my mother will love me. So we're all developing this primitive strategy, but we're not doing it with the articulation that I'm offering right now, which is pretty primitive. It's more primitive than that. We, we develop a strategy. Why the interaction of the Enneagram, which is its wisdom and its, if I might, its charism works I think the answer to that is we, we are not able to, with our logical, cognitive capacity, your friend used the term mystic, the way mystics know things cannot be explained. It's not actually helped much by language, although we use language to try to get at it. It's instructed in silence or in solitude. It doesn't lend itself to linear thinking. There's a circular quality to life that we in the West um, don't have deep access to, although in the last 40 years and the work that you've done at Commonweal and all the people you bring here, they're all appreciating or apprehending this in some way. This has that quality to it that we intuitively know is accurate. And the truth of the Enneagram is all a person has to do, they don't need the testimony of me or Michael or anyone else. They can buy a book and put it to the test I haven't met anyone yet, and I've been teaching this for 30 years. I haven't met anyone who came back and said, this, makes, I, I, this doesn't work for me. It works for people. And its, it's logic is in its application to the intuitive principles we know about being human beings. That's the, kind of the best answer I can give. Although if Claudio Narano was here, I think he could give you a much more sophisticated answer based on his kind of exploration of this. Well, one of the things Claudio Naranjo did as a psychiatrist was to overlay Western psychiatric categories on this, and he found a beautiful fit. And in uh, the Riso and Hudson book, The Wisdom of the Enneagram, which we've been talking about, uh, they also overlay Karen Horney's work on it. And so you have the gut, you have the heart, you have the mind. And just in classical terms, you know, what are we all given? We're given hearts, we're given minds, we're given our bodies or our hands. So that uh, love, uh, wisdom, uh, service, or body responses are pretty deeply built in. So I can see why it works because it fits with contemporary Western psychology, it fits with the classical hardhead hands. But what that doesn't answer for me is why astrology, which is not based that way, works, and why, for that matter, Tarot or I Ching, which are theoretically chance-based, are so profound. And at that level, what I go to as an explanation, in other words, it could be astrology, the reasons astrology works could be completely random. Uh, you know, Richard Tarnas makes a real case that it's actually empirically real in his work, that, you know, that when you're born actually affects uh, where you are as opposed to random attribution. Uh, but 
how does that explain the I Ching or the Tarot and how powerful they are? So my answer about archetypes, and I don't think it's complete, it goes back to a distinction that um, Jerome Bruner, the psychologist, made between science, fact-based stuff, and stories, and how stories reach us at a level that scientific fact just doesn't. And in truth, stories are kind of the original way that human beings communicate. The Enneagram, astrology, the I Ching, the Tarot, are all story-based. And so when you approach any source of potential wisdom with heartfelt commitment and curiosity, and you go through a process of divination of some kind, and what appears is a story. And that story seems to me that it evokes and constellates a powerful sense of truth within you that then enables you, it's strong enough, to see yourself in that story, even if it's randomly assigned, or if it's assigned by birth date, or if it's assigned this way. Now, the thing about the Enneagram that is so powerful to me is that whereas astrology, if Richard, leaving Tarnas aside, if astrology is a random assignment, and if Tarot and the I Ching are random assignments, this is the only one that says to you, here are nine human responses to being human. And your divination process is to look deeply enough into it to see which one fits for you. And then what's extraordinary is how the wings and the inner movements of the Enneagram enable you to explore things about yourself or another person that were completely not obvious based on the original, you know, assignment. And given how many different in other words, we haven't gotten into it and we won't get all the way into it, but given that each point has two wings, two inner movements, right? And then, you know, one toward integration and one toward disintegration. And then there's the sexual, the social, and the instinctual types that are laid on top of that. And then if you follow Riso and Hudson, there's the low-functioning, normal, and high-functioning. So you get up to 150 or more variations, and those variations are so complex that you can find aspects of your story in all of them. That's right. So, so to me, there's a special interest in how powerful this is. One way to consider these types is really to say there are 27 main types, not mm-hmm. nine, because our wings, which we haven't discussed and perhaps mm-hmm. we will, can be powerful determinants of how we think and how we feel and how we behave. Um, uh, I'm a one, and I have a very strong two-wing. I have almost no nine-wing. And so I really live in the juncture here between the one and the two, even though my core issues are one issues. And you would find yourself uh, finding that when I, as a one, disintegrate, I move to my four. So I have yet another aspect to my personality. When I integrate my life, I move to a seven. I look and feel and act like a seven. A seven is processed and integrated. When I move to my four, I move to an unintegrated, unprocessed, dark four. So we have each personality has four additional aspects, any of which can be stronger 
the wings on a permanent basis can be stronger, and everyone has two wings. You may favor one significantly over the other, or you may have more balanced. With the integration and disintegration qualities, and on this, if you can see it, the arrow points to where we disintegrate, where we stress. The arrow that we go against points to the place we integrate or unstress. We have a wide variety of ways we interact. The arrows move to positions we don't occupy all the time. We occupy when we're not doing well or when we're really doing well. Um, but the wings we can access and be at all the time. So I'm a one with two wing all the time. I don't then decide, oh, I want to go be a one with a nine wing. It's not operative for me. Why? I don't know, except for the strategy I chose as a, a child that I've refined and refined and refined uh, as an adult. And for myself, just so that people can hear these things, I see myself primarily as a five, the observer who functions mentally. My heart catches up with me. My emotions catch up with me after, you know, I've, um, after I've done my mental work. Um, I'm definitely part of the fear-based triad. Fear is a core issue for me. Um, disintegration, I go to seven, the epicure, the enthusiast. Integration, I go to eight. You call it the boss. Um, uh, the you know, uh, There's another word for it. Ed. What is the other eight also called? It's uh, called several things. I get yeah. so used to the language yeah, the that bosses, I've developed. Yeah. But in any case, uh, you know, eight is the... <clears throat> what I'm called to when I'm asked to be in a leadership uh, role. But it's not where I actually reside. I reside in uh, the witness place. Um, Bill, you have worked with this a lot uh, in, the, um, in your spiritual direction work and in your Jesuit experience and so forth. Uh, we know that uh, Richard Rohr wrote a beautiful book on the Enneagram with Andreas Ebert, The Enneagram, A Christian Perspective, which is one of my favorites, actually. Um, and um, so I'm curious about how you got into the Enneagram and how you use it in your uh, spiritual direction work. I'd be happy to talk about that. I'm going to speak a little autobiographically for a few minutes. Please. Um, because, of course, the Enneagram is, for all of us, autobiographical. Um, I, was, uh, I had gone to a Jesuit prep school in Jesuit University, and then I entered the Jesuits, and I was a Jesuit for 10 years. So I spent 18 years of my prior-to-age-30 life uh, with the Jesuits. Um, I was studying at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, in 1977, when the Enneagram was beginning to pulse among the Jesuits. And my spiritual director, who was a very wise uh, older man, introduced this to me. And I was very resistant. I was smarter than this. I knew I didn't need any typology. I was resistant to astrology, tarot, I Ching, any others you want to name. I knew that uh, the Western philosophical tradition of metaphysics that I've been taught could answer all human questions. Of course, they answered no, none of my real questions, but I was pretty committed to that. I was also uh, a late-stage alcoholic, deeply closeted gay man from a large Irish Catholic family that reinforced 
in a very powerful way the life I was living. And uh, Bob Egan, my teacher, introduced me to the Enneagram, and he mistyped me, as happens sometimes. He saw that I lived with a lot of fear because I was repressing those two large movements in my life, and he tied me a six. But after a few months of working with me, he said, I've been very wrong, Bill. I'm very sorry, but you're not a six. You're a one, because you have a lot of hidden anger. And I was like, I have no hidden anger, Bob. <laughs> He's like, no, let me move back, Bill, because it's radiating off of your person. <laughs> I don't credit the uh, Enneagram with the reformation that took place in my life, but I credit it with giving me some tools to finally see myself as I am, which I did not want to see almost at any cost. In very short order, I got sober. I got sober on Labor Day of 1978. I came out of the closet October 1st, 1978, and I left the Jesuits that spring. (laughs) A, uh, A revolution had occurred within me, within my spirit. And my intent was, and this is a very one thing, I was going to claim myself at all costs. I was going to finally become who I am. And the Enneagram has been my teacher for the subsequent 39 years. I began, I continued to work with with spiritual directors, and I've had spiritual directors all my life. I entered into therapy with a very wise psychiatrist in San Francisco who knew the Enneagram, and we worked with it as a primary tool. Partially so I didn't get off track, because I would love to be many other types. In fact, on a given day, I'd like to be any other type. (laughs) And the Enneagram has really invited me in my interior life to be faithful to myself and to the work I have to do in life. I have a large bent within me uh, to the interior. I meditate. I meditated for my adult life. And what the Enneagram provides me is a way to continue to observe my ego defenses and how they work. And it's really, that's its ultimate value to me, is how it teaches us, Bill, these are your ego defenses. They're not leaving you. You're not going to perfect them. You're not going to undo them. You have to work with them. And it's a great guide. I went to school then and got a degree in clinical psychology and have had a private practice for the last 33 years. I've also done spiritual direction, particularly with religious, meaning men and women who are involved in active ministry. And it's been the the primary tool I've used to be faithful to them. When I am working with an eight, I work really hard to be faithful to how an eight is in the world and not wanting the eight to act like a two or a seven, but to be faithful to their eightness. You're listening to a conversation with Bill Glenn and Michael Lerner. That may be a difficult number for me. It's actually not too difficult, but there are difficult numbers for me within the Enneagram. Which ones are difficult for you? Where I disintegrate, and I have fours. Mm -hmm. I have many fours in my life. My best friend is a four. Mm -hmm. But I continually want to just shape him up, and he doesn't need shaping up. One of the things I find wonderful about you, and I, I noticed it when you did the staff workshop at Commonweal, and I said to somebody that you teach Enneagram like a one. How, how else could I do this? Right. But the point is, you teach Enneagram like, this is how it is, this is how it works, and it's this very definitive, you know, uh, commitment to both truth and perfection. 
And it's, it's wonderful to observe the different ways that different people teach Enneagram based on their Enneagram types. My spouse would tell you, that's how I get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> that's how today is going to be. When I go to bed at night, I'm going to do, did I do those things correctly today? I don't use the word perfect anymore because it's not kosher for me, so I choose other words. Because we're flexible, we human beings, and our egos are enormously flexible. If the ego feels blocked here, the ego will find, ego will find a path around. But the great gift of meditation, in addition to the Enneagram, is to allow us to sit as if we were fives and observe that without judgment. Mm -hmm. To observe that phenomenon and not to regret it. Not to regret that that's how we are. So I began to use this with clients. I use it to this day with clients. I use it overtly and covertly. If my intuition is that a client would like the Enneagram, I suggest they investigate it, and then if they want to use it in our work, and about half my clients do. Uh, another half of my clients, my intuition is that the Enneagram is either beyond their kin or their, the crisis in their lives or the trauma they're dealing with does not need this overlay at this time. But I nonetheless respect them in their type so that I'm faithful to them uh, as their therapist or their spiritual director. So it's, it's accompanied my life. Uh, I've been with my spouse for 35 years. And the first 10 years of our relationship, we'd have dinner parties. And, of course, I'd talk Enneagram in the manner, unfortunately, that Michael just described, <laughs> which our friends more or less liked. Of course, if they like me, they are used to this, right? And my spouse would never enter the conversation, which doesn't one didn't bother me too much. And I, uh, he's a, a, a very good-looking and very charming guy. So when I met him, I thought he was a three. And then when we grew to be a couple and he started to deteriorate, I thought, well, I've been so wrong, he's a six. And I thought that for years, because both my parents were sixes, and I'm very used to a six style. And three sixes and nines are deeply connected in the Enneagram. And one day, about ten years into our relationship, he asked me for Rohr's book, and I gave it to him. And one night at dinner, he goes, I'm a nine. I'm the eye of God in your life. <laughs> <laughs> Just what I need. <laughs> but it was a perfect explication of how a nine operates. He listens to this. He doesn't want to decide. He doesn't want to type. And if you have a difficult time typing yourself, pay attention to nine. He's a nine. So making decisions is very hard for him. Ones make decisions with their first breath in the morning. We're a very good couple because we complement each other. And you notice we're right next to each other in the Enneagram. For many reasons, we both work out of our gut. He has a big one wing. Thank God for our marriage. He doesn't have a big eight wing because I'd be fighting that. Um, so I've been working with my, in my personal life, but in my professional life, it's been a great gift. Now, you talked about the, uh, the, the nine, uh, three, six triad. And let's just take a moment on that because that's the kind of core triad of the Enneagram. And again, that's uh, the, the three is the heart, the six is the mind, and the nine is the gut. So that's the, that, and those three are the center points of each of the three types. Like that's the right. nine is the center point of gut, the three is the center point of heart, and the six <laughs> is the center point of mind. So that, that's, you know, that's sort of the heart of the whole thing. Keen observation how you observe that they're at the center. 
Within this structure, there is this kind of crown-like structure. And within that, there's this triangle, you'll see it. And I did it in, if you can perceive it, it's in gold, so you can distinguish it from the other colors. And this triangle is operating within itself at all times. The nines and the sixes and the threes integrate and disintegrate to each other and manifest each other's sense or way with great regularity. That isn't true for the other types. These three touch each other all the time. The other types exist outside of this central triangle. It doesn't mean that that triangle has primacy or that those are better types. It just means that their interactions are much more uh, regulated by each other. In the outer circle, you'll see ones integrated sevens, integrated fives, integrated eights, integrated twos, integrated fours, back up to one. So it's a more complicated, not complex, but more complicated uh, uh, structure. One of the other things that, that I've noticed about Enneagram is you mentioned that Gurdjieff introduced it and then uh, Claudio Naranjo learned it from Oscar Chazo in Chile and then he brought it up to Berkeley and then this circle developed. But one of the most extraordinary things about it as an archetypal psychology is that it's, a psych it's an archetypal psychology that you can watch in formation that many different people have contributed to. And so, you know, I mean, Gurdjieff didn't use it as a, a personality system at all, basically. I mean, you know, you could argue about that. But uh, Naranjo was the person who developed it as a theory of personality. And then all these other people that we've mentioned uh, have added things to it. So the, uh, the Riso Hudson book, The Wisdom of the Enneagram, it's innovated in a number of ways. You know, so for example, the low functioning, normal and high functioning is completely their, their you know, contribution to this. I think it, it is an endless amount of right. uh, complexity right. the Enneagram holds. And those two right. have spent their, the last 35, 40, right. year, 40 years right. doing this. Helen Palmer, who really was the first to popularize the Enneagram right. in the United States, um, Without her, it, it perhaps would not have achieved what it did. And her perspective was more the medical model than mm -hmm. Riso and Hudson, who are more a spiritual model or a mm -hmm. mystical model of the Enneagram. Um, but as you say, Nirano's original insight, he has correlated uh, all types with pathology. And I'm not going to get into pathology. With psychiatric pathologies, according Correct. to conventional diagnosis. That's right. So those are observed... Those are observed pathological types in contemporary psychology that map perfectly onto the Enneagram. And are very intuitive, and you don't right. have to know right. psychiatry. If you knew what the pathology of a type is, it'd be very intuitive. You'd say, of course that's mm -hmm. there. And, but it doesn't mean all types <coughs> that were, were pathological. It's when we are at our most disintegrated, right. we develop pathology. But the pathology comes out of our core issues. For all of us, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's beautiful in that way. And it's, I was telling Michael before we began today, uh, professor of psychiatry at the Stanford Medical School has a new book out on the Enneagram, which 40 years ago to imagine medical doctors were delving into something like this whose mm -hmm. origins are obscure and who the efficacy of is only demonstrable by its lived experience as mm -hmm. opposed to being able to be explained intellectually. 
is a remarkable thing. They teach at the Stanford Business School because they know, and they're creating MBAs there, they're creating leaders in business. They know that if a person has this tool, that person will be able to manage other people mm-hmm. with efficacy and generously. So uh, one of the interesting things uh, is the suggestion that similar ideas were found in the work of, I'm going to mispronounce this, Evagrius Ponticus, a Christian mystic who lived in the 4th fourth century Alexandria. And Evagrius identified eight logissima, or deadly thoughts, um, that um, uh, he called, uh, the overarching thought he called love of self. And he said, the first thought of all is that of love of self. After this come the other eight. So um, talk a little bit, if you can, about... um, There was a theory that this was an ancient Sufi mystical tradition, which has been more or less discredited. Correct. Uh, But there are these resonances um, to early Christian thought, and you mentioned Kabbalah. Uh, can you say a little more about any of that historical lineage? I, I use language today, and some of the authors do, that mirrors the language of the seven deadly sins, which come right. out of uh, initially Jewish and then later uh, kind of Christian understanding of the fall of man and what are uh, main challenges. None of us uh, are gripped by all of those uh, devils, if you will, but each of us are gripped by something. And this comes out of an attempt by early uh, Christian and Jewish writers to understand what are the blocks that I have to develop an interior life. Interior life is contemporary language, a spiritual life, a prayer life, a relationship with the divine, a relationship with God. And of course, we're in a time in which all of this language is um, no longer shared in common. Each of these words is uh, loaded, but the, the efficacy of using these, this language, which comes out of ancient spirituality, uh, is as acute and, and, and uh, current as it, today as it was then. Um, this language really was fully developed by the third, fourth century uh, of the Common Era. It hasn't been added too much, although psychology, which is really a, a profession and a way of being that has been codified only in the last 150 years appreciates this language deeply, but uses different language, more scientific language, to capture it. The language that psychiatry as a a path in medicine uses is very different, but it captures the same reality. So these roots go back to a more primitive culture in which we didn't have access to the kind of refined ways of diagnosing and analyzing we have now but that are utterly accurate. When I say earlier, uh, shame or uh, avarice, those of us who hold those types, we know, we know what that is. We know that part of ourselves. I know about anger deeply. I don't know about avarice as much. I know a lot about anger because I inhabit that as my shadow side. Jung's contribution to this, really, really focusing on the shadow um, and helping human beings understand that The shadow is the material we are required to move through spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, psychologically in order to come to the light, nirvana, knowing, unity, clarity, one. The language is diverse, but the reality, as going back to what you said at the beginning of this conversation, 
the reality is that there is a, a light that is manifest in all the religious traditions of the world. My teacher, Thomas Merton, at the end of his life, you may know that he entered into a deep dialogue with Buddhists in the 1950s and 60s. Before that, dialogue was part of common culture. He was forbidden by his abbot to do it, and he was a defiant four because he had a big one that he would uh, go to to integrate. He went to Bangkok for a meeting with the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama was a young man then. But these two young men, they knew they had a brother in each other. And he went to uh, uh, Bangkok, and there is an enormous sleeping Buddha, a Buddha on its side, outside of Bangkok. And I'm remiss that I don't remember the name of this Buddha. I have its picture deeply in my mind, and it's longer than this room and as tall as the ceiling. And, and Merton, a Trappist monk who had come from, at, from uh, a family of atheists in, in France and Britain to the United States, and he had his conversion experience at Columbia University, he stood in front of that monk, and he had his moment. He had his moment. And everything he had been struggling to know, he was very bright, he published 60, 70 books and thousands of articles. His correspondence was voluminous. He had his moment. And he went back to his hotel room and wrote about the moment, I see. That's what he said, I see. He took a shower. He got out of the shower, tripped over a fan that was on. The fan fell on his person and electrocuted him. He had his moment. He saw. He could go. I'm not trying to mythologize him. But that's the level at which when we do our work and when we are able to go beyond the ego, when he said his moment in Louisville, his two great moments of life which are written about by everyone who writes about him, I'm a, I'm a human being, I'm a human being just like all the other human beings. I get to be a human being. Yeah, I think that's the great insight. I really do. I think that's the core. When you say he was your teacher, did you actually know him or do you mean... I did not know him, uh-huh. but I was introduced to him in 1970 when I was a Jesuit novice, mm-hmm. and I was very drawn to his work. Introduced to him personally or to no, his work? No, I'm sorry. Yeah. I was introduced to him by my novice master. Uh-huh. Uh, my novice master thought he and I would be a good team. Uh-huh. Uh, and I say my teacher because uh, we all have uh, yeah, a yeah. few teachers in life, uh, and he is one of uh, two or three people who have really shaped me, mm-hmm. who I haven't met. Um, but every year, last week I went to a Trappist monastery in Oregon where I go every year for an eight-day retreat. Mm-hmm. I go every year to be with the Trappists, which he was, which are an order of priests who live in hermitages, who live in silence. Um, and to be in their midst for eight days a year, is re- it's like it's recovering my sense, my soul, my person. Um, so he, he is my teacher. He spoke to you. And that there's a book about him as an Enneagram type is a beautiful thing. You mentioned that it was based on, uh, or that there's a deep relationship to the seven deadly sins of uh, Christianity. And you also mentioned that in the United States, some people move away from the implicit shadow perspective that the Enneagram gives us, which is why we don't like our points, and to teach the spiritual dimension. And so among those who teach the spiritual dimension are A.H. Almas with a beautiful book called The Enneagram of Holy Ideas and his colleague Sandra Maitri 
uh, um, who has two books out. Um, one is called The Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram, and the other, I believe, is called The Passions of the Enneagram. But, um, and I, I like to hold those two approaches in balance because given, giving us the shadow is a gift. But recognizing that the, quote, sin, you know this better than I do, that the Greek word for sin means missing the mark, which I actually like much better than the word sin. It's missing the mark. And so that missing of the mark, in fact, it gives us the sense that not only as a five is my core sin, avarice, and my issue, fear, but that, um, as you say, the Buddha was a five. And, you know, the, the sort of joke about fives is that they're, quote, unenlightened Buddhas, you know, so that sense that I have of tremendous detachment from a lot of things that would worry other people, you know, they just roll off my back a lot of the time. And so by being able to see, not only does this describe my, quote, sin, but it describes in a, my missing of the mark, but it also introduces me to my holy idea. And it just seems to me... I guess the question for you is, as a spiritual director, do you work with the holy idea as well as with the sin when you work with people with the Enneagram? You hold the holy idea out there and continue to understand what the blocking is from you becoming the person that you are. Right. Because we are, in fact, a holy idea. Right. And all nine of us are essential to completing, if you will, the holy idea for the earth. Right. No type can be dismissed or we lose an integral part. And if we had a day-long workshop, the second half would be about the transformation of us. And I know the word sin is a problematic word. It's hard to say the seven deadly missing of the marks because it it gets conflicted. And the, the, the value is to know that this shadow issue precludes our being, becoming, embodying the holy idea that we're called to be, which is a manifestation of as those writers in particular talk about a manifestation of the divine. Well, we could say the, we could say the uh, nine archetypes of shadow, you know, if we don't like the word sin. I mean, actually, sin is a very interesting word, and I think we've lost something by letting go of it. But uh, the nine archetypes of shadow. I also uh, appreciate that all this language gets complex because we don't share common language anymore about spiritual things. If this workshop were beginning in 1950, of course, no one would come because the Enneagram would have been heresy and and unthinkable, but we shared a common language. And now we are each in some way uh, on a very individual interior journey. I think that will change in time and we will coalesce again, but we're in in a remarkable time and not an unspiritual time at all. You're listening to a conversation with Bill Glenn and Michael Weiner. I observe, especially in service, and we don't focus on this in our culture, but I'm so conscious. Um, you mentioned I worked at San Quentin. I worked at San Quentin for 10 years. Hundreds of people are going into San Quentin every day. Hundreds of people in the Bay Area going to San Quentin to serve these men. It's a spiritual dictum to visit those in prison. And you'd think, well, who does that? Hundreds and hundreds of people a week going to San Quentin. 
They go there to serve the men, but they really go there to be transformed. I was giving a talk uh, about 15 years ago at an agency I ran, and a guy was in the audience, and he came up to me afterwards. He's now my good friend. His name is Jacques. And he said, I, I think you should come to prison with me. I had never met him before, and I thought, you know, one, I thought, well, who's this whack job? <laughs> he called me six months later. And he goes, this is Jacques. I met you. Would you come to prison with me? And the way he said it had an authority that I felt compelled to respond to. And I walked into San Quentin the first day, having no, ever, ever a desire to go into a prison or be around prisoners. I had many of the cultural notions we hold about people in prison. And I walked into the inner yard and I felt an opening occur. I felt I was home. That was the only word I had. I'm home. And I thought, what is this? We went into the group and every man in the group, and I ended up working with this group weekly for 10 years. Every man had taken a human life. The, uh, I'm not a, a, an idealizer. Over the course of my 10 years, I began to recognize the room was filled with bodhisattvas. Men who had done work that I had yet to do. Men who had worked through their shadow issues that they had chosen at a very tender age in the extremely abject circumstances in which they lived. And they made a terrible error on a given day more than their psyches could bear. And they came into prison with shame that we cannot acknowledge because we don't hold that kind of shame. And over the 10 years in this group, we called the work Sitting in the Fire. And all we did, we left for two and a half hours every week. We sat in the fire. And you did, got to do nothing but claim your humanity by acknowledging deeply what had happened and that that was not all that you are. And the resistance to that, because the ego defense for these men was to say, I am only this criminal. I am only this murderer. And to invite the ego to back off, to have these men become human beings, they became my teachers. And I mean that. I'm, I'm not, there's no false humility in that. They taught me how to be a man by inviting me to be utterly myself with them. And I went there to serve them, and they served me. And I suspect most of you, if not all, are involved in service. That's how service works. Mm. I want to open this up to questions and comments. I want to start with people uh, who have some depth experience with the Enneagram. Any of you who have worked with this for some time uh, have questions or comments? Yes. Hi, my name's Daniel, and I actually, um, being a seven, I'm an impresario. I produce events for people. <laughs> and at one time, I produced an event with an artist named Sheila Glover, who does a show called Is Anybody Home? And she goes through the nine Enneagrams in the first set with all the shadow, and then she goes through the nine Enneagrams in the second set with all the joy, and it was just a fantastic event. And you stimulated me, and we end up producing that again. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for that comment. Thank you. Other comments from people who've worked with Enneagram? Yes. Not a comment. I just wondered if you would talk a little more about shamelessness for Nate. I've never heard that <laughs> word used before in relationships. Do you know any AIDS? <laughs> so AIDS are uh, the more un the, perhaps the most unbounded of types in the Enneagram because of their largeness of spirit and their, lar their largeness of person. They are able to move into other types strongly 
in a way that a four or a five would not. And they can miss the boundary marker that says, don't move in on me. And the person whose boundary marker they are missing will react to them, communicating, I am, I am feeling shamed by the way you're moving in on me. And the eight will, the uninvolved eight, the unevolved eight, the unintegrated eight, will miss that marker and act shamelessly with that person, not being aware that that behavior is creating shame. Clear? Yes, thank you. Other questions or comments? I just want to keep... Get, and now from people who don't know. Yeah, yes, Mimi, please. Just as a point of history, I took a class from Helen Palmer in Berkeley in the 70s. But I lived there then. Uh, but I'm a nine, mm-hmm. and um, I continue to be a nine. <laughs> <laughs> when I took the test, I took, and I haven't worked with this a lot, and just recently I've started thinking about it and thinking, getting back to it. And I took the test when I signed up for the workshop. And so I scored very high on the three, the ninth, you know, but then the three and the five. So I figured in that those are my, and I see those are my shadow areas that I really need to go to. You know, I'm not convinced, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, but I'm not convinced that the test is actually all that accurate. I mean, to my mind, the way to work with Enneagram is to study the types. In fact, and then just intuitively discover where you are. That's the point, because I felt very strongly uh, going back to it, and I hadn't kept a lot of my papers from back then. And so I couldn't quite remember what I was. The tests are really a phenomenon of the Internet. Uh, 30 years ago, there were no tests. You would do work with the Enneagram, and you would intuitively know at a point in time, oh, my God, this is speaking to me. This is my life experience. This this writer knows me. So uh, uh, acute was the uh, uh, knowledge that the sign communicated. And that was my response because... When it shot to the nine, and then, you know, because I scored as high as you can score on the nine, and then came for these other two, the most, you know, points. When I do a workshop, we spend the first half hour, I'll, I'll go through confusions, yes. misidentifications, because people say, I was high on the one, the seven, the three, and the eight. Yeah. <laughs> what am I? I'm going, I, I, it's not my place to tell you what you are, but to, to why some numbers are confused with other numbers. But that approach of thinking that 150 questions or 28 questions, whichever test you took, is going to tell you who you are. I, I appreciate the, both comments. Yeah. Uh, that's a very limited tool. It's a tool to get someone kind of hooked in. Helps get started. That's right. But that's yeah. it's. Yeah, I found that uh, in, the, in the Wisdom of the Enneagram, that those six paragraphs right at the beginning of the book, it has worked with everybody that, and friends who, the first thing they want to know is what number. And so I read, I read three paragraphs, they pick the one that's, when I give it to them, as soon as I get to the paragraph, I go, this, this is who it is, and they go, that. And it's never failed. And, and so I've done the 144 statements, and where I found that was really helpful is when I did it with somebody else, that I would I would go through it for them, which was a learning for me. But you really learn a lot about each other from you know answering those those questions. So even if you don't come up with your exact number, you sure learn a lot. Great comment. Yes. 
Uh, well, most of my life, my working life, I was a three, and I've discovered I'm not three anymore, which is interesting because now I'm really looking at the shadow of the three, mm -hmm. <laughs> all the shadow side of the three that I ignored for, for so long. Well, now, the theory, this is another interesting point. The theory is that you stay one type. I, I have heard many people say to me, I used to be X and now I think I'm Y. But you talked about it as uh, an ego defense that is, that is developed early in life. But I've heard other people say that you come in with it. In other words, that it isn't just developed early in life, that actually you were born right. with that proclivity. What I, is your view of that? Um, I, I know some folks think that, and I, I, my point isn't to dispute them, but I've come to understand it because I, when people talk about the, the constellation of their families, yeah. and they begin to describe when they knew, they, they won't say when I knew I was a two, but when I began to act in this certain way, I began to do that for these reasons. And the reasonableness of the position they adopted led me over time to believe that our antenna, our acutely aware of our environment, and we're choosing a strategy to get our needs met. Mm -hmm. But I also affirm that I would gingerly say in a workshop that we stay our type and continue to work with it. We don't, we don't start as a one and then, oh, I'm really a five. Um, we may, as we expand ourselves and become broader and less defended, we may have aspects of another number that are stellar or largeness. I have a lot of five in me. The part of me that meditates and that retreats is very similar to a five. I'm not, I'm not under the illusion I'm a five. There are days I would like to be, uh, but I, I'm, I am required by life to work with the material that is relatively hardwired. If you know that if, if you've had children, the hard wiring that goes on in the first three years, if your kids are now in their 40s, you still see the three-year-old in the 40-year-old. They're still working with that hard wiring. Does hard wiring mean it's uh, absolute and we can't shift with it? No, it doesn't mean that. Well, let me speak to the reason I think there's an innate dimension to it also, which is there's a nice distinction that people make in children between, I forget the words, but... Uh, the fragile flower versus the resilient. There's something like that. So if you are born with a kind of fragility, um, the, and like the, fra I'm not using the right words, but the fragile uh, uh, flower, if given the right hothouse conditions, can do extremely well. Whereas if they're stressed, they really crumple. Whereas the resilience can do well under stress and under hothouse conditions, but maybe not as well as the, the vulnerable one that just blossomed. So if you were uh, born with you know, hypersensitivity and fragility, it seems to me there are certain strategies that you'd be less likely to take on. So you'd be less likely to be an eight, for example, and more likely to be a one or a two you'd probably be less likely to be a three, more likely to be a four, right. and uh, you know, fairly likely to be a five, and so on. So it seems to me there's a combination of uh, endowment, genetic endowment, or whatever you want to call it, and choice. I think the, the, the fact that there are, we, we come into the world with, a, and parents will yeah. say this, they yeah. go, 
I, I knew, but I could see at two days there right. were these trades. Right. It, uh, is probably not in contradiction to the fact that then right. we observe our the, environment. And we choose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, you talk a little bit about how you can uh, look at the percentage of different uh, types uh, within a culture. And I'm curious, is that a cultural um, kind of artifact? Is it caused by culture? And then second, I'm curious your thoughts on kind of uh, authoritarianism, uh, both from the leading and the following perspective. Do they cluster around the same type or is there kind of an interaction between two? Those are great questions. Thank I'll speak to the second first. Uh, sixes are most prone to authoritarianism, both in being the, the authority. The eight is a, is a leader that does not have to be authoritarian to lead. A six to be a leader, like Nixon, like Hitler, and I, I don't want to say those are the only six leaders, but they are profoundly influenced by fear. And the response of a person to fear is to have the fear addressed by someone who's strong. And so you'll see phenomena in our own culture of people who are really riven with fear, responding to language that suggests, I'm strong and I will take care of you. And it has a political articulation that is quite specific to a culture. But sixes are most um, clustered around both sides of that dynamic. Um, to your first question, no one has deciphered fully the influence of culture versus gene. I'll go back to what uh, two, often the oldest daughters are twos. There's a cultural quality to that because we socialize girls in a particular way in our culture or have until very recently, and we have for thousands of years. So many more women are twos than men. I hardly know a male two. There are male twos, but hardly any. They're almost all women because women are socialized from a very early age or... Women intuit the way I can get my needs met is by doing this role, which is a cultural role, well, and by doing that. So they choose that, or that's part of their culture, or they have an innate sense of their relationship with the mother that leads them. I don't know. But after the age of four or five, many of my friends, when I began working with the Enneagram in the late 70s, my friends who were married, I began to teach them the Enneagram. And they would begin to use it in raising their children from birth. And they would notice, and uh, this couple is an eight-six couple, the woman's an eight, very bright, and, and she began to notice the tendencies and proclivities her children had six months, seven months, eight months. And she began to see their type, if you will, flower. And she did everything to make sure she was not squelching that, but advancing that person, that child of hers, in their type. Well, there's a cultural component of that, but not primarily. So it's a piece of it. Probably not a satisfying answer, but... You had a question? Yes. Well, uh, a story. story. Um, some years ago, I went to uh, a well-known and I believe reputable palm, palmist. Yeah. And I walked in believing that I was a four and loving the idea. Um, and I had my reasons <laughs> for that. And it just came up in our session... Apparently, he had worked for many years with palms and with the Enneagram and had made correlations mm. between them. And he looked at my hand and he said, this is not the hand of a four. You could be a one or an eight. <laughs> and of the two, I was really clear. It was one. And mm. I didn't have to give up my fourishness because, of course, there's the arrow. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I found that, so, so that may speak to the innate, you know, I mean, we're born with our prints, although they do change, but right. just another dimension to what we're talking about. A couple more questions. Yes, one. No, you've had one, so I need to go. Yes, yeah. You started to address this just a moment ago, um, but I'm wondering in terms of work with people at an early age with the Enneagram, and specifically I'm just wondering, you know, those of us that have had that impression or that what, what we need to get our needs met at an early age and then gone through 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of reinforcing and strengthening and, and building on those beliefs before we go and take you know, an assessment and kind of figure out what that shadow side is. Um, and I'm also kind of building on the story of the, the folks at San Quentin who did something at a relatively young age to expose that shadow and, and face that shadow. Have you noticed any, either just through personal experience or um, with other people that have worked with, with the Enneagram, how, how it can be used at, at a much earlier age with students or with children as they're developing? And whether it's, as you mentioned, embracing the number that they are growing into, or whether it's even broadening behind that. So some of that, is it important to cultivate the shadow and, and the things around that or to diffuse it? When we're young, we don't have to cultivate the shadow. <laughs> it's available to us and it's very available to our parents. What we do over time is we, the, the ego is brilliant. One of the ways the ego is brilliant, it represses the shadow so we do not have access to it. The Enneagram helps as adults ex, expose that. But the... Uh, with the child, of course, this is an intellectual system, or the, the way we're apprehending it today is intellectually. A child has no capacity to take on the system, but a wise parent will see, oh, my child really functions in this way, really acts this way, really thinks this way, really feels this way. She, she really works out of her gut. She has a perfectionist streak. She's always trying to please me by being good. So the parent can observe that and think, what does my child need to free up? And the parent, in her mind, goes to the seven and says, my child needs to have opportunities to be creative, express herself, be free, play. Play is a foreign, people, <laughs> it's a foreign word for ones. Michael observed, I teach this like, a, because the play, I learned how to play when I was in my early 60s. <laughs> it's, so you, you help that child, you see that child who's a one disintegrate stress at her four where she gets involved with stories and a kind of uh, being alone and sadness and thinking, I don't belong. And you help them see, you, you help them identify you do belong, you are part. But you, you nourish the fours of the Enneagram, express the beauty. Without fours, the world would be not worth living in. It wouldn't be beautiful. It wouldn't be aesthetically pleasing. So you acknowledge that deep core, which is not the shadow. The shadow is what keeps us from getting to our deep core. I am not anger. I'm not even a perfectionist on a given day. I am a human being who has deep values to bring to the earth that are peculiar to ones. The perfectionism and the anger have to be dissipated, gentled, removed, probably not, gentled. I want, to, I want to ask you a few closing questions. One, one obvious one that is probably on the minds of a number of people, uh, and I know is raised, is um, if someone is looking for a life partner or a soulmate, 
is it helpful to, if you know what point you are, uh, to look for a soulmate or partner with another point? That's the first question. And the second one relates to work as well. If you are uh, looking for the right kind of work for you, or conversely, if you are hiring somebody or looking for somebody for a position, uh, does it help you uh, to think about the kind of person to hire based on Enneagram? So it's really the same question. In, in Love and Work, Helen Palmer's wonderful book called The Enneagram and Love and Work, and I know she answers that question there. Uh, what is it, what is the place of the Enneagram in thinking about partners in love and work? So I want to give this book a plug. Yeah. Helen Palmer's book, which is not her first book, this came years right. later, In Love and Work, she takes every type and she pairs it with every other type in a romantic relationship and in the workplace. It's very smart. She's a little drier as a writer, but she is like whip smart. And she will pair every number up so they have a sense, what does this couple look like? I think any Enneagram teacher would say, you're, you're probably best not ending up with your own type. <laughs> So a double one couple, oh my God, that would not be a fun household. Double eight, double seven, double six, double five, double four. <laughs> what we do when we choose a partner, I believe, is we intuitively know that this partner has some balance for us, which means we really have to cultivate and trust our intuition, which we don't do so well in our culture. Careful of the mic. You're playing with it. That was jewelry. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Bill Ball was the executive director of the American Conservatory Theater for 30 years in San Francisco. Came out here and really founded it. And one day in Herb Cade's column back in the early 80s, he was quoted as saying, I have come to trust my intuition at all times with every person in every situation. And I thought that was an epiphany for me, how the intuition is infallible. The wisdom of the Enneagram is based on deeply, intuitively knowing ourselves and each other. So when we choose a partner, we intuitively know this person brings gifts to me as I bring gifts to him or her that no one else can bring or that no other. We don't think of type. When we find someone attractive, we're not thinking, hmm, what type are they? But we are being very intuitive. So to trust your intuition. The same going into a workplace, whether you're going in as a potential employee, evaluating it and interviewing your hirers, or whether you're the hirer and evaluating employee, to really trust your intuition. There are some people who cannot work for some types. And to know that about yourself, if you know the Enneagram, you're going to go into the workplace and you know, I really don't work well with this kind of person. And this person feels to me like an unevolved X. No matter what the pay is like, that's not going to be a place you're going to be happy or can come alive. So to really trust your intuition. And if you know the Enneagram, you'll know other types. It becomes deeply intuitive. That's the gift of it. You'll be able to be with a group of people and you'll really see, oh my God, this person's a four or she's a beautiful three or he's a rare two. He's like, you know. And you'll begin, it's by osmosis. You'll begin to trust that and interact with people Freely, Michael said at the very beginning of this conversation a long time ago that this teaches us compassion. When I know how you are in the world, not who you are, it's how you are, because who you are is unknowable. It's the deepest part of us. 
but how you are, how you travel the planet, if I know that and respect that, all I can have for you is compassion. And of course, that's what I learned at San Quentin. I went in to be with these murderers and they turned out to be my teachers. All of life is like that. And I suspect you all know that. You wouldn't come to a workshop like this without deeply knowing that. We need to be reminded of that by our friends, by our lovers. But Bill, any last thoughts, reflections, questions I haven't asked you that you'd mm. like to address? You're a good asker. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only thing I would say in addition to, to and Michael's right, the, the test is not going to tell you. Learning this, studying this. Th- this book is is as complete as anything. Which is the wisdom of the Enneagram by Riso and Hudson. But the other thing I would encourage you to do is, if you are not already, to develop a spiritual practice that has you being silent. And I'm going to end by reading a poem from my friend and teacher, Thomas Merton. But to really encourage you, and there's something onerous about silence for us. In this group that I led for many years, Uh, there's a a young woman in the group, and she said, in her church, and we spent a lot of time in silence with each other, she said in her church growing up, that if there was silence, it meant someone had effed up really badly. (laughs) So let me read this. If you seek a heavenly light, I, solitude, am your professor. I go before you into emptiness, raise strange suns for your new mornings, opening the secret windows of your innermost apartment. When I, loneliness, give my special signal, follow my silence, follow where I beckon. Fear not, little beast, little spirit, thou word and animal. I, solitude, am angel and have prayed in your name. Look at the empty, wealthy night, the pilgrim moon, I am the appointed hour, the now that cuts time like a blade. I am the unexpected flash, beyond yes, beyond no, the forerunner of the word of God. Follow my ways and I will lead you to golden-haired suns, logos and music, blameless joys, innocent of questions and beyond answers. For I, solitude, am thine own self, I, nothingness, am thy all. I, silence, am thy. Amen. Let's uh, take a moment of silence together. Peace, peace. Bill Glenn, thank you for being with us at the New School. I love being here. Thank you you all for coming. You've been listening to a conversation with Bill Glenn and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.com. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N 
W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook.